WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts, and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Stereotypes around who can transmit or get HIV still persist, with many people assuming that only gay men are impacted by HIV and AIDS. Now, this leaves women shut out from screening and preventative services geared toward the LGBTQ community. Now, according to HIV.gov, cisgender women accounted for nearly one in five of the new HIV diagnoses in 2021, and black women are getting hit the hardest. But efforts are underway to bring education and preventative medicine to cis women, especially black women. Now, we spoke with Dr. Sadia Haider, Rush University Medical Center's acting chief of gynecology, about her research on the issue. And I started off by asking her about the program funded by the National Institutes of Health and why it focused on black cis women specifically. We have been working towards this research that we're doing for a number of years. This study um, is funded for five years. It just We just received the funding in August okay. of this year, and it's a planned initiative for a five-year period. It's collaborative with um, Lurie nor- at Northwestern, um, Lurie Children's Hospital. One of our collaborators is there. Uh, we have colleagues at UIC and in combination with Planned Parenthood clinics across Illinois. Wow. Yeah. So walk us through why this project is needed. Why is it so important and why focus on black cisgender women specifically? Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, women are um, still acquiring HIV, uh, despite the fact that we often don't perceive that to be the case. So cis women represent um, approximately 20% of the 40,000 new infections annually. Black women experience one of the highest incidents, as you said, um, second only to men who have sex with men. Black women account for 60% of new HIV infections. And in Chicago, there's not only are there racial disparities across the nation, um, Chicago also has one of the highest rates of HIV acquisition. And 59% of the new infections in Chicago are among cis black women. Do we have any idea why that is? Yeah, I think there are multiple factors. I think we know that there's a lack of sort of self perception of risk among the heterosexual population in general. Um, We also know the communities that um, many of the black cis women living in Chicago live in communities with high rates of HIV infection, up to as high as 5%. And in the setting of lack of awareness of risk, um, certain risk behaviors might be taken without prevention. Mm -hmm. In addition, there's a lack of um, awareness on the healthcare system side of, in terms of providers who take care of patients, cis black women specifically, actually educating their patients, offering preventive strategies, um, knowledge gaps sort of both on the patient and the provider side in Mm -hmm. areas where there are high risk pockets of heterosexual transmission. So black women are are facing barriers then in in accessing HIV care. Yeah, I think there are barriers in terms of even just understanding their risk and being provided the knowledge and in terms of accessing 
the, the prevention. Yeah, you bring up some good points there. I want you to talk more about how medical mistrust might factor into these. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think historically we know there's, um, you know, there is a need for trusted providers to really bridge that gap between knowledge and then eventually in terms of actually uptaking medical care. So um, in the case of, you know, s sexual and reproductive health, that's even more um, needed because this is an area that's very sensitive. Patients need to trust their provider to actually feel that they can um, talk about their sexual um, behaviors. And often our providers are not representative of our population. And so there, there's a need to really engage um, kind of community members in this educational effort mm -hmm. and then bridge that gap and bring the trust to the patient. Yeah, that cultural competency exactly. conversation has been yep. so prevalent, mm -hmm. especially over the last few years. Yeah. You talked about gaps in how uh, providers approach prescribing PrEP to women. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so unfortunately, despite the fact that PrEP um, pre-exposure prophylaxis has been very effective and available in the United States since 2012 for many, many years, and there have been many efforts to um, increase awareness and uptake, there's been less done on the side of providers who take care of women in particular. Mm -hmm. And so many providers aren't even aware that they should be offering this to, to patients. Um, so I would say there's very limited prescription. We know that only like 10% of um, black women who would be at risk and should be offered this prescription are getting it. So there's yeah. really a lack of clear knowledge gap amongst providers and comfort level with sort of addressing um, the need for HIV prevention among women, cis women in particular, mm -hmm. and black women. You know, as you're speaking, Dr. Heider, I'm, I'm even thinking back, you know, in my own travels and just at my different, you know, gynecological offices, mm -hmm. whether I'd even seen a poster. Yeah. No, you probably haven't. I've never seen that. Yeah. I've never seen any pamphlets or <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. any sort of advertisement. Mm -hmm. um, and I think not only in the, in the physician's office, but if you look at um, public campaigns, whether it's, you know, through public health initiatives, a lot, you know, posters, um, websites, they're very much geared towards men or um, LGBTQ populations. Um, the advertisements for the medications, even on TV and otherwise, often do not represent yeah. um, cis women. And so for the for the person listening who still isn't connecting the dots, I mean, give us the takeaway here. Like, why are black women more than any other ethnicity or race getting HIV at such high rates? Yeah, I think there are um, multifactorial issues. Um, so... Black women are, in general, facing more structural and social challenges. We know there's a component of, you know, what we call social determinants of health, which um, include, like, transportation, getting to a, a clinician's office, having the ability to pay for medical care. So those are innate factors amongst, you know, um, certain racial groups, specifically black population. And then there's the sort of... Um, lack of awareness in that community. And then there's also the the higher rates of um, sexually transmitted infections in this population. We can look at various zip codes in Chicago. And we know that those rates are significantly higher within certain communities. Mm -hmm. And so with just like other sexually transmitted infections that are higher in those communities, HIV is also higher. Um, and so it's really through their partners that they're acquiring this, mm -hmm. right? So um, the partner rates are high. Um, men in these communities have higher rates of HIV, and thus their their female partners who are not aware of the risk 
have higher um, transmission and are not accessing care um, due to various factors. You're coming at this issue, doctor, uh, with a multi-pronged approach then. So just uh, walk us through how this project specifically works, right? So you're focusing on education, yeah. first and foremost, yep. patient education. Uh, what else? You're providing yeah. training. So there are uh, essentially several um, efforts in combination that we think will increase the um, uptake of PrEP amongst this population, specifically Black cis women. So our approach is to first think about like which settings and can we reach women the most, right? So many, most women even may not access care regularly, but if they show up to a Planned Parenthood clinic or a family planning clinic, they are showing up because they need sexual reproductive health care, which means they might be already at risk because they've, you know, need um, preventive health around sexual reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. They might be more open to talking about it. So we've chosen this setting. So we've chosen to work in a large system of family planning clinics across Planned Parenthood of Illinois. So that's the first thing. So mm-hmm. that's the setting where we know we can reach a lot of black cis women yeah. who are accessing care. The second thing is the um, provider training. So we're doing a number of initiatives to really bring up the awareness amongst providers in these clinics to understand you know, how do you screen for this? How do you prescribe it? Why should we be doing it routinely? Um, and then we're using, we're um, having a community advisory board, uh, which will be members of community from from the black community. Some may have used PrEP, some may have not. Some may have gotten HIV, some may have not, to really think about how best to reach the patient. I see. Yeah. You, you talked about the prevalence of this um, in, in Chicago. So this is a local project. Yeah, You're so the project that we here. are working, that we just got funded um, for across um, Illinois is just uh, focused on Illinois, primarily in Chicago. We do have other work as a team across these same partners that I'm working with mm-hmm. at Lori and um, across the nation that are working in the South as well. Yeah. Um, so we have some Focus other on efforts. urban centers, urban centers, high risk, high risk um, centers. This isn't your first time looking into this issue, though this is a newly funded project. Yes. Right? Uh, So talk more about what you've seen in your previous research that's going to inform this work. Yeah. So in the previous research, we really did see the the, what we documented and looked at was the gap in knowledge on the patient and the provider side. Mm -hmm. So we did a number of studies where we looked at our patients being offered, you know, when they show up to a gynecology appointment, is their provider talking to them about this? Um, and we found that very high rates were not being, um, at very high rates, patients were not being informed about this. Mm-hmm. The other things we documented were if you did set up a, in a very, in a small scale, we set up a pilot study in which we looked at these initiatives, the patient provider um, education piece, some aspect of what we called emerge, um, electric electronic medical record optimization that would help support the providers to prescribe this once they're aware of how to prescribe it, why they should prescribe it, Mm -hmm. and some patient navigation as well, which is supporting the patient with the logistical factors, getting to care, um, getting their prescriptions filled, um, financial help to get the prescriptions. Mm -hmm. So those are the things we've looked at in smaller scales um, to then say like some of the, these are efforts that seem to work on a smaller scale Let's put them all together and do it on a larger scale to have a larger impact. What's the end goal here? How will you know yeah, that this has been successful? This is a great question. So when you apply to the National Institute of Health, you have to have very clear outcomes and metrics. Um, and so we had to very clearly define that. And um, 
the outcome is really up, increased uptake of PrEP by a certain number among black cis women. Our goal would be to ultimately, right now we're prescribing to very few women, right? Like less than 10%. And in these clinics that we're looking at, even less than that. So up to 15, 20% or higher is what we're looking for in the study. But ultimately our goal would be if this works, could we expand this to clinics across the country that take care of cis Other black women? Other community organizations and, too. Right. And exactly partnering with community organizations and you know the ending the hiv um uh, epidemic is really focused on getting hiv down by 75 percent by 2025 this is a you know national initiative Mm -hmm. and 90 percent by um 2030 and that's our goal so to that end doctor i mean what message do you want to drive home then as you've got the ears of of our listeners uh who might think that they aren't likely to become HIV positive? What do you say? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, we, I think we just want to, I think you're, you know, you're going to bring on other speakers who will talk about stigma. And I think um, knowing, you know, not, I want people to be aware that this is, you know, should be an open conversation. It's not an issue that should be stigmatized. I think really we should be able to educate our community to know that just be self-aware um, know that there are high rates still in in Chicago mm-hmm. and across the country. Know that as a as a cis woman, you are still potentially at risk, even if you may not be engaging in some of the behaviors that are generally associated with HIV acquisition. You still may be at risk. You know, bring it up with your clinician if it hasn't been brought up to you. Be empowered to have those conversations. Um, and know there are lots of resources and support to get this medication prevention. Speaking of resources, where can folks access HIV screening or get more information on on PrEP in general? Yeah. And, and remind us of the, the cost. So now um, H- this uh, PrEP medication is now generic. Um, has, has There's now a generic version, so we don't have to pay for the higher cost um, brand name. Okay. Um, it is covered by most insurance um, and pr- pretty much all insurance that I'm aware of. So Medicaid in particular would cover this. So it shouldn't be, it should be free of cost for the majority of our patients. Um, Really good information. CDC.gov has lots of really good information. If you look up specifically HIV prevention and PrEP, um, there are many resources within Chicago. The Chicago AIDS Foundation has really good community-based resources, not only um, information and knowledge um, that you can gain there, but also resources for accessing the care you know, support for getting to appointments, those kinds of things. We'll leave it there. That's Dr. Sadia Haider, who's acting chair of gynecology at Rush University Medical Center. We were discussing her research and efforts to bring more HIV prevention and care to black cisgender women. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Today is the 35th anniversary of World AIDS Day, and this year's theme is to remember the lives that we've lost but also to commit to a better future where HIV is no longer a public health threat. Now, a lot has changed since the first reported cases of HIV in 1981. New treatments have been developed, and there's now PrEP, a highly effective medicine that prevents HIV. But stigma and misinformation around HIV and AIDS still persist. So we talked with a pair of people about their experiences living with HIV and the solutions that they feel are needed to help cut through that stigma. Jer Washington is an HIV prevention specialist at Life is Work, a social services agency on the west side geared toward transgender people. And Rick Guasco is the editor-in-chief of Positively Aware, a magazine centered around HIV health news. Now, Rick started off by walking us through his experience, finding out about his HIV status. I didn't even know that I had HIV until I developed Kaposi's sarcoma, 
which is a form of skin cancer that um, at the time, this was 1990, excuse me, 1992, um, was considered an end-stage AIDS-defining illness. If you, if you saw the movie Tom, uh, with Tom Hanks called Philadelphia, mm-hmm. that's what he had. He had KS, Kaposi sarcoma, and that's what I had. And I was so afraid and in, in, in denial so much that I didn't get tested until about six months after I'd seen the first spot. Hmm. And so about a week before Christmas of 1992, I found out that not only did I have HIV, but these spots were indeed KS and that I had AIDS. Where did that fear come from? You said you were so afraid to even get it checked out. Oh, well, because at the time, you know, HIV was a death sentence. A lot of people, this was in the 80s and into into the early 90s, um, people would find out that they had HIV and then died weeks if uh, or months later. Back then, HIV really was a death sentence. Yeah. And I also understand that you don't want to only talk about the past, right? You've been continue, continuing to do work around HIV and AIDS. You want to talk about that? Right, certainly. You know, when when we say AIDS, you know, people will think about, uh, you know, the plague years, as some of us call it, the 1980s, the early 1990s, before there were effective HIV treatments. But thanks to those treatments, HIV is not a death sentence. We say that HIV is a life sentence. Today, if you are on treatment, you're adherent, um, you very likely can become undetectable. What that means is that there isn't enough virus in your blood to be detected by a regular HIV test. Moreover, you can't pass it on sexually to your partner or parents who um, are uh, breastfeeding or chest feeding cannot pass it on to their infant. Mm. So, um, you know, the first HIV medications uh, that came out starting in, the, in 1995-96, that marked the first time when the number of people who died of AIDS actually went down. The thing is that it, it's still persistent. Right, yeah. Well, let's bring Jerry into the conversation. Jerry, I understand that you, you got into HIV prevention work about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. What was it that inspired you? Um, one of my closest friends, um, you know, um, told me that they had got pulled for housing, and um, I was like, okay, cool, that's what's up. You know, I'm happy for you. And then, you know, they disclosed to me that, um, you know, that their test results came back reactive. And I was like, oh, so, you know. Their test results came back reactive. Yes. And what does that mean? Um, that means that the person was HIV positive. Um, and, you know, like, this was a person that was, like, so close to me, you know, it hit home, and, you know, it really just, like, kind of woke me up because, you know, like, this is real, this is here, and, you know, like, you know, someone has to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by me having such a powerful voice and, you know, being able to advocate not only for myself but also others, um, you know, that just kind of shed the light, like, you know, that especially in my community, um, you know, we need to see more people that look like us advocating for us so, you know, um, people like me can stay into care and, you know, can, and can see, um, you know, what being HIV positive or undetectable looks like. And, you know, um, you know, you can be healthy, you can live a normal, healthy lifestyle. So tell us then about what it was like finding out about your own status. 
Um, when I found out I was um, HIV positive, um, it was February 7th of 2001. Um, I just cried that first day, honestly. Um, prior to the year before that, um, I kind of went through a very traumatic experience. Um, my mom passed away seven days before my birthday. Seven days after my birthday, I was brutally attacked on the southeast side of Chicago. Um, wow. I was stabbed real bad. And then, you know, seven days after that, I lost my job. So, Gosh, you know, I'm so sorry, Jer. When I found out about my status, you know, it really wasn't nothing to me. Like, I've, I've lost so much. You know, this was something that came into my life that I know that wasn't going anywhere. But still, there were tears yeah. on day one. Yeah. Um, what I, was going through your mind? Um, like, wow. Like, I, I, I wasn't in disbelief. Um, you know, honestly, I went in there prepared, knowing that I was HIV positive for the fact that because um, I used to be a sex worker. Um, what, I, what I call it, um, customer service representative. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I know I was doing risky behavior and things like that, but, you know, I had to had, had to have a sustainable living, you know. Um, I'm doing work and, you know, um, you know, working in this um, field, you know, you, you can't get rich off of it. So, you know, I, ha I have to sustain a sustain a living, you know, pay rent. I, ha I have animals and other things that I have to take care of. So, um, you know, doing sex work was... Um, a much faster way to get um, income. Um, so when I did um, find out I was positive, I really wasn't scared, honestly, because I've seen that, you know, technology and, you know, medicine has changed so much over the years since, you know, the AIDS epidemic has started. And, you know, um, as long as you take your medication, you know, you can stay undetectable, you can live a longer, healthier life. Honestly, um, with Honestly, with the person who isn't HIV positive, you know, you're living longer than, you know, those people because you're going to regularly checkups. You're going to get blood work done. You're going to see, you know, what's going on. So, honestly, yeah. it really didn't scare me at all. So, Rick, I mean, you're, you're sitting here. You're you're listening to uh, Jer's experience. I mean, is anything resonating with you? Oh, certainly. That There's always this fear. I mean, even somebody today, if they go in to get tested— uh, there, there's the nervousness that of, of finding out, and but the thing is that it's not the end of the world if you get tested if you get tested and test positive, because the medications that are out there are so effective that you have a good chance of living a normal lifespan, mm -hmm. and in fact, actually, people living with HIV don't necessarily die from HIV. What they're dying from are all the things that everybody else is dying from. Cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes. That's a good point, a good distinction to, to make. I don't think everyone knows that. No, and in fact, actually, so effective are these medications that people are now aging with HIV. Here in the U.S., more than half the people living with HIV in the U.S. are over age 50. And by the year 2030, that's going to be 70%. How do you feel thinking about your own life? Do you feel as though you're going to have that longevity that we all aspire for, right? We well, all want to age and... Well, I have to admit, you know, having... I was 28 when I had developed KS and discovered I was living with HIV and didn't think that I would live to see 30. I'm 59 now. Um, I don't think about longevity um, I just tried to live life. 
Live a full life. Live a full life. I'm one of the people that is part of that 50, 50% and growing people who are over age 50. And um, I, I just want to assure people to know that they can have a long, active, and good life. Yeah. What about you, Jer? Do you think about that? Do you think about living a long life? Um, How have your feelings sort of changed, evolved over time? Honestly, I don't think about living a long life. Um, I just live in the moment, honestly. You know, I just live it day by day. You know, I just live like it's my last day, honestly, because it's like in this day and age, like I've seen so many of my friends like just drop like flies. So it's like I don't think about the future. I just I just live in the moment, honestly. Uh, do you feel like conversations have evolved around HIV over time? Yes, I do. You think it's changed for the better? I think it's changed for the better, but there's there's still room for more change. How's what have you seen? Um, honestly, um, when you have people, well, I'm say community health workers in the community that looks like us, and you know that you see people who are in care and who are healthy, you know that shows that you know. We're doing something right. Um, and I noticed, um, especially working with my population, that um, um, if, you're in a, if you're in a position, you know, to help a person get in care and um, help a person become self-sufficient and you look like them, you know, that'll, have, that'll give them comfortable, comfortable enough to come back and receive care because you have that trust with them. I see. Right, because otherwise, right, if we have situations where you don't look like them, right? Mm -hmm. So a, a opposite of what you've just described. There are challenges mm -hmm. that people are facing just trying to access the care. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, most definitely. Um, especially like, you know, trying to get medical insurance, you know, and then, you know, having providers that look like you who can be personable and actually be relatable, you know, to you. Um, and, you know, just being welcoming. You know, um, you go into a lot of clinics and, you know, providers just prescribe you things that you need. But, like, you know, these providers need to start listening, honestly, and not just assuming what a person needs. Hmm. You have to meet the person where they're at, honestly. Rick, we've been talking through stigma. What do you feel is needed to cut through those stigmas and, and stereotypes? Oh, if only I had the answer to that. <laughs> um, it's changing people's minds. It's correcting the misinformation. It's um, directing people to reliable sources of information. And, but the, the, the real challenge is overcoming people's misperceptions. I can't tell you how many times. When let's, I, let's run through some of them. Okay. Some of those misconceptions that, that people still have when it comes to HIV and AIDS. What, what do you hear? Uh, only those kind of people get HIV. Or, well, I heard Magic Johnson got cured. Okay, he did not get cured. There is no cure for HIV. So there yeah, are some hear that very effective treatments, and he's probably taking the same medication that Jer and I are. So, Jer, you're nodding. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, yeah. all, this all rings, rings a bell and sounds too familiar. Yeah. You, you often say, though, that um, anyone is HIV possible? Yes. Well, I've, well, actually, um, PhD Dr. Tatiana Moulton has said that, and I just um, repeated the quote after her. Mm -hmm. um, and what do you really, want to drive home when you say something like that um, to people listening? That anyone is HIV possible. Like, it's literally the message. Anyone is HIV possible. And um, the H stands for human. Any human 
is HIV possible? Man, woman, trans, woman, trans, man, gender nonconforming, non-binary, like anyone can contract HIV. It's not just a gay disease as people think that it is. Yeah. We talked about AIDS a moment ago, mm-hmm. Rick. Um, more than half of people living with AIDS are over 50. Well, uh, with HIV. There's with a, HIV? Yeah. Uh, they're over 50, right? This is um, data from the CDC. Yes. What kind of care and resources do people over 50 need? They need geriatric services just like anybody else over age 50. Again, if, they're take, if, they're, <clears throat> if they have access to medicine, and I realize that that is a major factor, that's a major issue, but if they have access to medications, they're adherent, very likely their HIV is under control. So now we have to address all these myriad issues that anybody in that age group is going to encounter. Everything from being on a fixed income, insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, transportation, assisted housing. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday about how um, people aging with HIV, some of them as they advance in in aging might have to move into senior citizen housing, Mm -hmm. uh, assisted care facilities, and Sometimes that forces them to go back into the closet. They have to hide their HIV status. They might have to hide the fact that they are LGBTQ because of the fear that they will be not only stigmatized, but that that knowledge will affect the quality of their care and treatment. Add to that, Jer, I mean, mental health care. That's another need that you both actually, you know, highlight for Mm -hmm. folks who are living with HIV. Um, yes, most definitely. Um, especially since the pandemic has started, you know, um, shutting the city down, children not being able to go to school or, you know, adults not being able to go to work and, you know, work a regular daily life. You know, mental health does play a big impact in um, having care for um, HIV. Um, you know, being diagnosed with HIV is a very big thing. Um, and you have to, you know, I don't say you have to, but, you know, you have, you know, to have the the mental capacity, you know, to deal with it, you know, you know, see a therapist, you know, and I honestly, when I was diagnosed, I didn't see a therapist until probably like a year later. Um, And that's because I literally wanted to deal with it mentally. Um, I was also dealing with other mental things and I wanted to deal with it in my way where I can, you know, self-heal versus me going to talk to someone before, um, I try to like deal with these things because everything is like it's an internal thing honestly it's a mental thing and um you know just seeing a mental health provider you know can change all that honestly hmm. well leave us with this rick i mean you have been able to build community with other people living with hiv what's that meant for you funny that you should say that because um a columnist for the magazine <clears throat> wrote a piece exactly about that and she said her name is Bridget Pico, and I really want to acknowledge her. She said that <clears throat> the one thing that she is grateful for about living with HIV is actually all the people that she has come to know, all the diverse and varied people that have befriended her and <clears throat> from all walks of life. And she wouldn't trade that for anything, mm-hmm. and neither would I. We'll leave it there. That is Rick Guasco, the editor-in-chief of Positively Aware, and Jer Washington, an HIV prevention specialist at Life is Work. On this World AIDS Day, we've been talking about the need to end stigma around HIV. Thank you both so much for taking the time. Thank you.
This episode was produced by Max Lubers and edited by Maha Ahmed and Brenda Ruiz. If you found this conversation informative, we'll check out our full catalog of interviews on the news that matters most to Chicago at wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.